This podcast may contain disturbing content for some listeners. It's intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. problem with alongside the void which so that uh episode is like part of this series but it's not like in the in the serial format it's alongside of it uh if you have trouble with that in most apps that you're on you just remove the download and re-download it and that should fix the glitch where it stops at like 42 minutes or something um, if you have more trouble with it just send me an email true crime excess and and, I, and I'll get that fixed for you. You know, I don't, <laughs> I don't even know. Like, so we've tried to record about this. I'm going to do it now. I think you were still catching up on the trial. I don't like to cover these big mainstream cases, but I, I can't not cover a little bit of this. Did, did you, did you go back and watch all of the Murdoch trial? Um, I've watched it all and I am currently like probably most of the way through the defense's close. Yeah, so there's all you've got left is the prosecution's closing argument. The defense is uh, they get a Wait, little rambly. Do they close again? They were they rebut. So okay. so the and prosecution, clearly. yeah, the, the prosecution has a main uh, closing there. The defense comes back, and then the prosecution rebuts some of it. And uh, I got to say that the prosecution does a, a really good job in closing. The defense does not, and then the prosecution comes back and. I don't, I don't know why they do this, but they did this throughout the trial. Every time the prosecution rebutted something that the defense did, like even the most ridiculous stuff that the defense did, which some of it was ridiculous, um, the, the defense in this case had way too many cooks in the kitchen, I think. But they just hammer them. They like – I use the word eviscerate um, because they, they literally – every point the defense tried to make, uh, in my opinion – the prosecution has uh, has pretty much destroyed it. Uh, so we've got a verdict at this point. Like everybody knows in the world that um, Alec, Alex, Alec, Alex, whatever you call him, his name is Alec. Alec, he is uh, he's guilty of killing uh, Paul and uh, Maggie Murdaugh. And I wanted to ask you, like, do you, I? I had like. One main reservation from this case. I think you had one. But do you think that's an accurate verdict just based on what you've been able to like look at so far? Well, that's a layered question. <laughs> um, so initially, I felt like um, you're right. We have tried to uh, discuss this several times. I was not interested in following that trial because it is – it's got a it, – it, grew legs and walked on its own. I mean, really, I, I that, didn't. That happens from time to time. Like we had some cases that we've done a lot of episodes on that never make the airwaves because you and I will fiercely sort of debate to the point that we can't use the episodes because we get into like a fight mode. Um, and it's very um, adversarial for the two of us. Right. Which isn't really entertaining apparently to 
our audience. Um, uh, but it, so I wasn't going to watch the trial when you, when I am going to watch a trial, uh, and, and say something about it, I'm going to watch the entire thing. Right. Um, I don't skim through it. I, I am going to, you know, take part in it, it to the extent that I know everything that happened from my own perspective. So I could have just as well been a juror sitting there. Right. And so that takes a lot of time. And so I knew the verdict. I knew the verdict shortly after I started watching the beginning of the trial. There is, uh, he was found guilty. Um, I've heard several of the jurors speak. Uh, They sound like they have good heads on their shoulders. Now, (laughs) you know, there's two different things here. There's uh, somebody committing a crime versus somebody being found guilty, right? Right. And I will say that based on the totality of the evidence, I have a really hard time figuring out who else could have done it, right? I question immensely uh, the defense strategy here. (laughs) Um, I I can't figure out what they were doing. Um, I, you know, I used the word farcical um, and you questioned that and I explained it, I think pretty thoroughly um, because there's a difference between offering another option to a theory that's been put, uh, you know, before the jury through witnesses um, by your party opponent, right? But it, like, it doesn't just open up free reign, right? Um, you can't put things out there that make, uh, you know, normal people, especially the jurors, think, well, they must think I'm stupid if they think I'm going to believe that, right? Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, it makes sense. And for those of you who haven't caught up on this trial, you can still. You can. There's like, there's literally a podcast called "The Trial of Alex Murdoch." You can pull that up, and it'll like let you listen to it. Um, uh, what Meg and I were looking for here, uh, we, we're covering this. Is it's not our it's not our main case for today. We're, this is just our true crime news for today because we we still had some questions. But as she was saying, she she called the defense farcical, and I asked her to s- sort of explain it. And, and this is what I'll say about it: um, this was a bad defense. Like like, and I don't know if it's from too many cooks in the kitchen, or they had a narrative story and it was changed by like. Uh, late brought evidence or what, uh, but I've listened to the bulk of the defense. Well, actually I've listened to all the defense twice now. And I, I went back through trying to figure out like if your word farcical was accurate, I feel like it's a little hyperbole, but not much because I do think you, you landed on the right notion. Um, there's something going on there where, they didn't go any way I personally would have gone trying to convince this jury. They didn't go anywhere. Yeah. And exactly. what they offered was nonsense. Um, they offered a, for the most part, the perspective I found that made me go, well, this is, you know, it's ridiculous. Um, they indicated that um, Paul's, injury to his head his the the shot that ultimately killed him uh was a contact 
uh, top of the head shotgun wound. Yeah. When in reality, it was a close range tangential to the shoulder into the neck up through the head wound. And um, the way that they explained it, and I watched and watched and watched again, and it's not my favorite thing. Um, They explained that essentially uh, the brain popped out through the same hole that the shot went into. That was their idea. Yeah. That, 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 and these were not, these are not crappy experts on the stand that they're, they have been paid well and they have been asked to give an alternative theory. It's just been like, so you but, just, it's almost like a parody of a defense. So I didn't understand. Okay. So let's say that they genuinely believe that. I would have to disagree that they're experts if they do, but they've said it on the stand. Um, it how does that help their defense? Okay, so with these types of witnesses, this is my theory on this, and I could be wrong because I, I have a genuine thing I want to talk to you about in a second that I feel like the prosecution failed on, and it bothers the crap out of me, and I think it bothered you. So when you're looking at defense experts. You, you have to do one of two things with them. One is you either have to rebut what the prosecution is saying and prove it's either false or there are other uh, equally plausible alternatives. Um, that's, that's the first thing. But the second thing is you got to weave a story so that a jury can understand that there is another possibility that is going to bring them to reasonable doubt that is not my client or uh, the client or the defendant um, being guilty of whatever it is that we're chasing here. So and, and I know I know your question is like, how did this defense help? Okay. I could see like remnants of a defense here that might've worked at one point in time. And you asked me sort of late in the game, I think you were finishing up and I was sort of going through my second watch because I was trying to solve a couple of things for myself on this, on uh, the Murdoch case to see if I was satisfied with the verdict. And, and I'm with you. Like the totality of the evidence is this guy probably did it. I have some questions. And, and so. Well, hold on I now. Can, go ahead. The defense did not help. And there is no way any reasonable person would have thought putting that up there was helpful. I, because even if they were 100% correct, there was nothing to indicate that Alec Murdaugh couldn't have done that. No, I agree. And the crazy – you're right. Like everything they did and every alternative theory they brought up, which were bonkers, weren't actually alternative theories to Alec Murdoch at all. They were just arguing for the yes. sake of arguing. And like they, with um, Dr. Reimer, Reimer yeah. uh, the, she actually did the autopsy on Paul and Maggie. Um, that is her job. She was called by the coroner of the county to perform her job. She was not being paid thousands of dollars to be there as an expert. It, she was performing her duty as the forensic pathologist, the medical examiner who does this stuff, right? Correct. Correct. And she did the autopsy. 
I don't understand what the defense was getting at because they were trying to. She's also rebuttal witness. She comes back to explain herself and she was not happy at all. Well, they go to impugn her credibility, which is something that you do. You put people on the stand, and if it's somebody has been put on the stand that's against your client or your side of things, you seek to impeach their testimony by making it not credible, right? Because ultimately in these trials, um, that jury trials, the jury gets to decide who they believe, right? Now, here's my point. My point is that, uh, you know, Dr. Reamer is, how, how do you say your name, Dr. Reimer or Reamer? I, I just was saying Reamer, but I, I was saying that because that's what I heard some other Southerners well, say. The I'm doctor not- that did the autopsies, she's performed, like, I think it was like 5,500. And then when she came back for her rebuttal testimony, she had performed more, like 12 yeah. more or something. And so, you know, this very um, just neutral doctor who was doing her everyday job, not like grandstanding for a trial, she comes in, she gives her medical opinion and she, uh, you know, she stands by it. And there aren't a whole lot of people, honestly, (laughs) that can really argue with that. I I don't think. Okay. Um, now she used her tried and true technique of, of what she does, right. Uh, to perform these autopsies. And the defense ripped her apart. The problem was it wouldn't have mattered if she conceded to every single thing that they said. She still did nothing wrong, and it did nothing to help their defense of their client. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Even if 100% of what the defense experts, which does admittedly get farcical and like a, a little loony at times, even if they are 100% correct, it could still be Alec Murdoch because they didn't do anything. Like there was a couple of pieces of evidence that came up. There was some video evidence of him, like where his voice is clearly in a place he said he wasn't. There was some evidence that came in related to the vehicles that he thought would clear him that doesn't really seem to clear him. Let me ask you this. It doesn't undermine what he said, though. Um, I will say that I think that the defense should have taken the time to – Instead of getting uh, a forensic pathologist and a, I'm not sure what the other guy's official title is. Um, the other, I think he's uh, a crime scene consultant and reconstructionist. I think that's his title. Okay. Well, instead of getting those two defense uh, expert witnesses to testify, I feel like they should have gotten a uh, a genetic genealogist. Yep. To um go further on the unidentified male DNA that was found under Maggie Murdaugh's left hand. I realized as the testimony of the trial continued that there was a lot of confusion in the analysis of what that DNA finding meant. And unfortunately, the lead investigator for SLED, his name was um, David Owens. Uh, David Owens misunderstood... Uh, what the DNA was pointing to. Right. Um, and he essentially says that 
and he says this during his testimony on the stand during the trial, he says that the in when they were trying to eliminate Alec from the circle, <laughs> they had to test like his clues and all this stuff of his. And the uh, defense attorney says, well, um, you know, what would have eliminated him? And he says, well, you know, somebody else's DNA being there, which there is someone else's DNA under Maggie Murdaugh's left fingernails. I, I don't know which one. I just know that that's how it's characterized. There were three alleles of unidentified, unknown male DNA that excluded her husband, Alec Murdaugh, who was found guilty, her son, Paul Murdaugh, her son, uh, Buster Murdaugh, and a whole slew of other people except for one. And the one person that they had his DNA and they tested it, it was like, I can't remember the number, but it was more likely that it was an unknown, unidentified person than it was, um, I believe it was CB, right? CB Rowe? Yeah, the groundskeeper. So it was more likely to be an unknown, unidentified person than it was to be his DNA, even though he had those alleles. Now, David Owen says on the stand that the DNA was unidentifiable and there was only one allele, and that's not correct. There has been further information like that has come out where the DNA analyst the way she explains it. And so that's the person who actually like got the DNA and like did the statistical analysis on it. Right. Her name is Sarah Zapata and she's a, she's an agent with the South Carolina law enforcement division. Right. And so she did the testing on it and um, it, she says her answers are, are vague, but they also gave me the impression that, either it never clicked for her or perhaps it was clicking like right then for her that um, like this was sort of a big deal. Right. Um, It is like a huge deal that she had unidentified male DNA under her fingernails to the extent that that DNA needs to be identified. Yeah. So, okay. Pause it for just a second. This is my one question that I have, and I think it might be yours. I'm not sure. Like, without that being identified, I would not feel comfortable, even if I was on the prosecution side, I wouldn't feel comfortable moving forward with a trial until that's identified. And it is not unidentifiable. That was a misconception by the SLED agent who was talking about it on the stand, David Owens. He and Sarah Zapata, they who is also a sled agent, which is, you know, basically their SBI down there. The two of them, they need a translator for each other because that, that's the one thing that like, look, I get it. The totality of the evidence right now looks like Alec Murdoch did it. And as far as I'm concerned, he probably did, but not identifying that DNA, which you described a scenario to me that made perfect sense for how that DNA got there. And it, it, it explained some of the other anomalies and questions that I had. Well, 
And, you know, we've got a lot of things we have to consider here that um, in reality, they don't come into play when you consider a man's uh, wife and child being killed and he spending the rest of his life in prison uh, in the event he didn't do it. However, this was a, you know, the, the legal system is a process, right? And this thing was going, right? Um, I do not think, I hope that uh, the prosecution equally misunderstood the situation yeah. um, because a prosecutor who is worth their salt. Okay. Now the uh, South Carolina attorney general did uh, rebuttal testimony for uh, Dr. Ken Kenzie, who was the prosecution's crime uh, reconstructing expert, right? Um, he did the rebuttal uh, direct testimony. Okay. So, I'm just going to say this. Wait, hold on. You, you kind of, you kind of glossed over that for a second. How big of a deal is that? It's a huge deal. This is a gigantic deal because you've got the attorney general of the state who he was there. I mean, he wasn't at closing, but he was there for a large part of the trial. Um, he didn't, uh, he wasn't actively participating, but on, uh, the rebuttal testimony, he did the direct for their crime scene uh, reconstruction investigator, expert, right? And what would you call that if you had to put a title on what he was doing there? Why do you think he was there doing that? A title on it? Yeah, yeah. If you had to say he was – I thought he was showboating, well, inserting sure. himself into a massively well, popular trial – and I found it to be like super lawyering. Well, and I, I mean, yeah, it could be obnoxious, but I, I try not to go there. But here's here's my point, though. So, you know, you've got uh, Creighton Waters was, I guess, the main prosecutor, right? Um, he's an assistant. Uh, I, South Carolina is confusing because they have solicitors, and but the the main prosecutor, he seemed to be like a pretty. A good attorney. I mean, he seems to be respectful, right? And yeah. actually, all the attorneys that spoke, both sides, they seem to be okay. I mean, okay, respectable attorneys. Um, but I said, so I, I brought up the attorney general being there because it's my opinion that any prosecutor worth their position in the interest of justice who who completely understood the testimony for what it actually was and not what it was presented as, right? When they heard that there was unidentified male DNA under Maggie Murdaugh's fingernails, and they realized that it had the potential to be identified, that they should have said, wait a second, we need to figure out whose DNA this is and alibi them out. Yeah, this is like that's how big a deal this is. Like this is a trial that went on for uh, six, six weeks. weeks. Yeah, so it it you know it it's definitely the most high profile and most sensational case to come out of South Carolina uh, in our lifetime, um, and it probably won't be uh, overshadowed. Like even like we've had some what I would consider bigger issue trials down there, Dylan Roof comes to mind, but this one will not be overshadowed for a long time. And it bothered me to the point that I'm talking about it here for 20 minutes today, because that DNA 
small an amount as it sounds, and those sled agents not being able to communicate within their own agency, because that's that's what I think the main problem here was. And I saw the look on Sarah Zapata's face you're talking about. She was already having trouble on the stand, and I'm not knocking her because being a good scientist, you don't necessarily have to be a great presenter. But she's the one sitting there explaining her testimony, explaining her testing, explaining her reporting, and explaining how she passed it up the chain. You could see she knew that other people within her agency did not understand what she did. And she did not understand. I don't want to say she didn't understand what she did because that's not the case, but she did not understand how to explain it to a jury, to her bosses, to the people around her, to these lawyers asking her questions. But that DNA is the amount of DNA that gets many five, 10, 15, 20, 25 year old cold cases thrown out because it's under a victim's fingernails. That's exactly right. Uh, And I want to be clear, granted, something could come up, but I preface this entire conversation with the fact that I, so far I've listened to all the testimony. The only thing I have left is like part of the defense's closing and I guess whatever the rebuttal closing from the state is. Man, this just goes on and on and on. But my my point in saying that is, you know, I'm not making, and because this is such a like infamous case, right? I'm not going off of just whatever. I listen to the testimony. I have not heard anything in the testimony that gives me any indication that there's any reason to doubt that that DNA could be identified. It hasn't been identified. We know that for sure. It's been used to exclude all the known sources of DNA they gathered. And on a conceptual basis, they missed the boat. Um, The other thing was they didn't swab Maggie for DNA. They didn't swab her phone for DNA. Yeah, if you found this DNA on the phone as well, what was the, like, you want to say the scenario that you came up with? There's a lot of like, and see, there's so much useless information. Um, and so they, I don't see why they didn't hone in, but I'm thinking it's because they didn't understand. But basically, there's some information about like what Maggie's phone was doing. Yeah, um, the access orientation, the lock, the unlock, the activity so- of the phone. DNA under someone's fingernails is more than likely not touch DNA, okay? It's not just some, you know, random skin cells that you're finding. It it very well could be touch DNA, but DNA under the fingernails, it doesn't get there the way touch DNA is transferred. It has to be, uh, it's almost like you have to scratch or you have to have, like, actual contact, right? Um, there are no defensive wounds on Maggie, according to the autopsy report, but her phone does a couple of things sort of at the end before it closes and locks forever. And before whomever killed her throws it, I I think it's maybe 150 yards down the road from their house, right? Yeah. It's away from the house. And so the things that are happening there, it made me think that somebody like that she had opened her phone to call 911 or something, right? And that somebody grabbed her phone away from her and that she had tried to grab it back. 
And that's how she got the DNA under her fingernails. Now, I heard like certified expert cell phone <laughs> cell phone analysts on I, I think both sides, I'm not really sure it got muddled together, uh, say that one of the actions that Maggie's phone took um, was that uh, it tried to unlock with the camera. Like, so her camera was like briefly activated, but then it was, it was turned off. And you're f- trying to unlock your phone is not the same function as the camera. It Somebody slid to the right or left or however you do it to bring the phone up without, un- I mean, to bring the camera up without unlocking the phone. Right. Do you know what I'm, I'm talking about? Yeah. It's an icon on your locked phone cover. Like if you look down at the bottom, it's, it's, it's literally the icon is the camera. I listened to these experts testify about it and I'm going, Oh my goodness. They don't know what they're talking about. Right. And then there was sort of in the last part of all this rebuttal testimony, they brought up the fact that they were trying to establish when the phone was thrown out of a car and ended up in the woods where they found it 150 yards down the road or whatever. And they explored the raise to wake feature on uh, like how it works. Right. Uh, Which if you guys, you know, if you have an iPhone, like when you pick up the phone, it, it, it comes alive. Like, what would you like? And then it'll unlock with your face if you have that version of the phone or whatever. And, and so we hear all this testimony about it. We hear, actually, we hear somebody who like did this like impromptu study on a phone. And then we hear like the other side tear him apart for it. Because right. he's like, well, did you record it? You know, and it, anyway, one thing I never heard was if anybody checked to see if the raise to wake feature was activated on Maggie's phone, because it's actually a setting. Yeah, I do not know. turned off and on, but yeah. nobody ever addresses that. And from what I can tell, which we don't have all the data, we just have what was, you know, uh, entered into evidence and not sealed, but I never saw her phone raising to wake anyway. I saw orientation changes, which is completely different than a raise to wake. Okay. And the thought behind that was they were trying to share like Alec didn't throw the phone out of the car, but all this testimony, complete nonsense. Nobody ever bothers to say whether they checked to see if she had that feature activated on her phone. Cause you can turn it off. Right. 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 And what the idea was, what they were saying there in, the, in where the prosecution was going there, I guess, is that it was actually Alec who did that while he was dialing her phone. So there are multiple phone calls and text messages from Alec to Maggie um, after the phone is asleep forever. Meaning, they, they said this in the trial over and over again, but the idea was the forever lock was because they were dead at 8.50-whatever, um, that any activity after that was caused by another party, and they were specifically saying that it, it was, you know, Alec Murdoch. And the concept was he looked at it and then threw it out the window. But what made me stick to that DNA, what drove me crazy, is, and I don't know if you noticed this, but, like, do you know which um, hand you carry your phone in? I carry my my phone in both hands. 
But I mean, if you're doing something with it to type a text message, you have hand, it in your left hand because right. you're using your right hand, which is why I really do think it's possible that the that that she heard Paul be shot, okay, and that she came, she was you know going to see what was happening, and that she opened her phone. Like she was going to do something, call nine one one. I'm not sure, but it. And then somebody took her phone from her, and she grabbed it back or tried to grab it back, and she got the DNA under her nails. Now, that's not enough of an action that it would have caused uh, like defensive, you know, broken nails and like things like that, right? It was just a reflex, but it was enough to get. DNA under her nails. Now, there has been talk about her having a manicure that day. Her manicurist is a female. So it's not her unidentified DNA. It's a male's unidentified DNA. Well, it would have been less interesting to me if it would have been under her right hand, because that's what you do all the things with. You shake with your right hand. You reach out and get your change with your right hand. That's your if you if, I, if that's your dominant hand. Well, if if there were 50 unidentified uh DNA profiles under either hand, that would be irrelevant to me because that just means like she don't wash her hands good. But that doesn't happen because you're not going to have 50 um, people's DNA under your fingernails. It is just not going to happen, right? Um, And, you know, I, I get it where it seems like, oh yeah, it wasn't a big deal. And I see like how they took that path, but based on like everything I've talked about with the avalanche of DNA and like you and I've gone through it all, like how are we going to know, you know, as DNA advances, how are we going to know who the actual perps are? And, you know, my go-to has always been like, well, if it's under the victim's fingernails, then it's relevant, right? I've said that several times. This case has blown my mind because um, if if that's where we stand, I'm wrong about all of it, but I don't see how that's possible because of the way I've predicted this and been accurate about the cycle that's been happening, right? Yeah, you have been. You called this years ago. And to me, uh, DNA under the fingernails is like the one place you can't well actually it is second because the first place would obviously be in, in the event that someone who has been murdered was sexually assaulted you want to test the D, D, any dna in any seminal fluid found right yeah um that would be like number 1 but number 2 is going to be under the the victim's fingernails and a lot of times there's not you know a sexual assault and there's no type of that type of evidence to test. And so under the fingernails becomes number one. And to me, the fact that it was so blatantly disregarded and you've got these expert witnesses, you know, throwing cell phones across the room and then trying to make it like it, the gunshot wound went the exact opposite way that it did and all this other stuff. And they didn't bring in anybody about the DNA and and this is like real live evidence that matters, right? Now, yep. granted, okay, granted, I am I am completely fine with it being identified and it not being her killer. 
Okay. Absolutely. But it's the identifying it that matters. And the fact that it's not, and I'm going to say this and it's, it's an extreme statement, but I think I mean it. Okay. It is impossible. It should be impossible for jurors to overcome reasonable doubt when there is unidentified, and it's male in this case, DNA under a murder victim's fingernails. Yeah. It should be impossible. Now, I don't know that, like, the general public realizes how uh, rare, how much of, like, not a coincidence uh, somebody else's DNA under your fingernails is. Um, I do realize that touch DNA is like this whole thing, but DNA under your fingernails is not the same thing as touch DNA. Yeah. Okay. Um, you know, she, she had neat fingernails that she got manicured. Yep. It, this is a big deal, right? Um, the it only is. way it would be touch DNA is if she, if somebody touched something that she then scratched and got it under her fingernails. Yeah. And so this is in, um, this is in the sled lab reports and I'm going to steer us away from the Murdoch trial here in a second, but I do want to mention this part. Um, it's, it's sled lab report number L2109074. It's part of the grand jury indictments, um, that ultimately get Alec Murdoch, uh, in, in, in front of, a judge for these charges. Um, and it literally says on page 16 of 18, or if you're looking at, um, there's a master file out there somewhere. Somebody was um, sharing the master file. The, the master file you notice doesn't have 18 pages. It has 96. So in that instance, it's on page 31. Um, but it says, uh, and, I'm, and I'm, I'm saying this for a reason. I'll get to it in just a second. It says that they did her left and right. And they did Paul's left and right. Just to give you like, an element of what's happening in the left and right fingernail clippings from Paul Murdoch, the DNA profiles they developed from the DNA under his fingernails is attributable to Paul Murdoch. The, and that's it. Right. The right fingernail clippings from Margaret Murdoch, which if that's her dominant hand, it's indicative of a lot of things. Uh, guess who that DNA profile is attributable to from that development? Margaret Murdoch. Correct. So, it's really the only DNA that would be under your fingernails. Correct. So this this left fingernail clipping from Margaret Myrtle is referenced here. Uh, and this is how seriously Sled took it. So this is why I'm, I'm saying it. They were able to develop a DNA profile suitable for comparison, which is not what they said on the stand, and it's not what they said to the grand jury. I'm just saying that so that I'm people understand. I'm aware of the I, yeah. I I feel that because that's exactly why I'm going, huh? When I'm yeah, yeah, hearing yeah. it, yeah. So so they did likelihood ratios on this, and they did uh, they calculated it using S STR mixes is what they call it. Um, they had multiple proposition sets that you know they went through, and that was that they believed Maggie was contributing to the mixture under her fingernails. So the DNA profile was interpreted as having been a mixture originating from two individuals. And they had enough information from that that this is what they did with it. They went and compared it to the following individuals to exclude them as contributors. Paul Murdahl, Anthony Cook, 
Roger Davis, Rogan Gibson, Connor Cook, um, Philip Beach, Renee Beach, Robin Beach, John Murdoch, Richard Alexander Murdoch Jr., who is known as Buster, uh, Richard Alexander Murdoch, Randy Murdoch, uh, Miley Altman, and Morgan uh, Dowdy, which is interesting because this is all the boat case people. Wait, um, but doesn't it say male? Ultimately, uh, they just compared it, and and at that point, they go back. It doesn't say specifically it's male. It just says they ran a proposition set based on trying to exclude all of those people. So it doesn't mean they excluded them based on the DNA not matching. They could have excluded, like, Morgan on the basis that she's female and it's male. Robin. Okay. I was just going to say, because I know I've seen it's male. I don't know exactly which report you're talking about, but it is somewhere that it is male. Correct. Correct. That is, that's in a, that's in a later report. All I'm saying is the first line is a DNA profile suitable for comparison was developed. Yeah. It it absolutely is um, comparable, which I believe I, I don't know if I've said on here, but like you couldn't put it into CODIS and get back a match, but you could take whoever's DNA you wanted and compare it to it and find right. out whose DNA that is. And they should have done that. That that is our that is our point is like because of the lack of other evidence for DNA, meaning like there was no DNA anywhere else. This I also DNA. Think they should have swabbed her phone and her dress. I'm just saying. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, the fact that the the DNA is essentially ignored and it's not explained. It means that Sled doesn't know, and it well, means and, that the prosecutor doesn't know. Well, and David Aaron sat on the stand and said, "Well, there wasn't." any usable unidentified DNA. It couldn't be compared with anything. And I was like, what is he talking about? Right. He, he said that on the stand during his cross examination and I, or maybe it was direct. I don't know who called him, but I was like, Oh my, he really doesn't know. And so there's a gap in understanding here that needs to be addressed. Um, They can do it however they want if he had been convicted of this crime 30 years ago without the benefit of dna testing this is a get out of jail free card he would be getting a new trial based on the dna evidence under maggie murdaugh's left hand uh left fingernails yeah and so all right (laughs) anything else you got on the murdaugh trial right now because i can talk about this for hours but it's not it's not the best topic for me because I get really heated and I think people interpret that as like one of, so I think people interpret it as I'm supporting Alec Murdoch. That's not what's happening. I don't give a crap about Alex Murdoch in this instance because he's done a lot of other things that are probably going to put him under the jail regardless. But wouldn't it be nice to know if he killed his wife and son that he killed his wife and son? Um, I ruled out that last piece of evidence. There are some other contributing factors, uh, that were brought up that, uh, make me, uh, feel like it, it deserves a visit, a revisit. (laughs) Um, but I would say now I'm not 
advocating for his innocence. I'm advocating for um, a juror, a jury, jurors uh, being aware of what constitutes beyond reasonable doubt. Now they're the finders of of fact. They get to weigh the credibility of all the evidence provided to them during a trial. They get to decide, you know, who's lying, who's telling the truth, what matters, what doesn't matter. And they have to do it in such a way that is presented to them, right? So I actually don't fault the jurors here because you've got experts on the stand saying, you know, this didn't matter or whatever they said that made it where my ears perked up. <laughs> but yeah. So I don't fault them for that. But so I'm not backing Alex Murdoch and I'm not saying his conviction was wrong. I am saying Anybody sitting there in the defendant's chair, any victim who has been killed and has unidentified DNA under their fingernails, it it needs to be that like so-and-so's DNA was under her fingernails and we know why it was there and it had nothing to do with the murder. That is how you overcome reasonable doubt in that situation and that didn't occur. Yeah, and this is what I'll say and this is what so a couple of people have given me some some pushback on this. This is what I'll say. What if it was you sitting in the defendant's chair and that DNA under their fingernails wasn't yours? And we know it's not Alec Murdoch's, right? Yep. Because they were able to develop a profile for comparison. That, like, so, you know, the idea that it's trace or touch DNA, that, uh, that's not going to, that, this is wrong. thrown out the window. Because um, this is, like, within a couple of weeks of the murder. So this is from their primary evidence. This is from stuff. That, and if it is the autopsy technicians or the EMTs or some roving deputy who reached down and, like, grabbed her hand to, when he was checking her pulse. It's easier to identify. Yep. Kick it out then. That's fine. Don't leave it dangling there. Because when you leave it dangling there, you let people like Alec Murdoch out of jail, whether he did it or not. Do you, you want to leave that dangling? I don't. And I, I am going to say pretty vehemently, I don't have the credentials to be an expert at this, but I've read so much stuff about it that I feel like I can say with the utmost confidence, this isn't going to be touch DNA. This isn't going to be somebody that just touched her. Um, I would go with, it's more likely, um, it could be, uh, if it is touch DNA, it's from her scratching something that had touch DNA on it. Uh, it's really hard to get DNA under your fingernails. Yeah. And that's the part that bothered me. Other, other than that piece of evidence, like I thought, I thought the prosecution put together a masterful story and they took down a monster. That's what I thought. Other than that, I thought the defense did a very poor job defending their client. Overall, I felt like there were two or three theories they were throwing out there constantly, and they never sat down and said he couldn't have done it because of this. And I don't know if that's the defendant himself trying to steer the ship. I don't know if it's too – because you got some big personalities. And, and that's the thing on both sides of this trial. you got big personalities on the prosecution side because I didn't care for some of the people on the prosecution side. you got some big personalities on the defense side, and I didn't care for the, the big personalities. It's fine if they want to get in there and have like a swinging or measuring contest or whatever it is that they're doing. I didn't care for that part of it. Um, and honestly, I'll tell you what. At the end of it all, I was really disappointed in the defense – and I'm giving the prosecution credit in, because they got the conviction in spite of the fact that like a lot of their tactics and their attitudes, I didn't care for them. Um, I honestly felt like this trial should have been moved much further away and dealt with by attorneys who were much less connected to it. 
And that's one of the problems you have when you have to take down one of your own because essentially this family is so enmeshed down there. Um, honestly, they should have tried it in like Atlanta or they should have moved it to the Carolinas. Like they, like it, these people have been so ingrained in the legal system in such a weird way for so long that it should have taken an unusual measure to try it. And I didn't, um, like I, I listened to it. I was so obsessed with this case for a few weeks and I couldn't figure out why. And at the end of it all, it's because it's just so soap opera like or dramatic. Yeah, it it was something for sure, and uh, you do get to see a rarity in that uh, the defendant did take the stand. Yeah. So we are trying to get an expert in here to talk with us about Bobby Jack Fowler. It's not going to happen on this episode. I've been doing, I've got two lined up that I'm hoping to talk to you about him. If not, some of these episodes are going to be weird. But I wanted to talk a little bit about him today because I I just wanted to, to point out like some origin things with him. And then I want to talk a little bit about something that was tangentially related to him. So we have a case on today other than me ranting about Alec Murdoch because I'm sure you're tired of me talking about the Murdoch case. Do you, are, you're a big uh, newspaper user, right? Like archival newspapers? Yes. I had a couple of weird things um, related to a Bobby Jock Fowler. Did you ever run across a, a, like another Bobby Jock Fowler when you were looking for this guy that like uh, is the supposed serial killer. Um, I I am aware that there are other one. There is at least an, one other one, but I did not look into them. Okay, so I, I just want to read an article to you because it had a bunch of court records attached to it, and it was it was interesting in its own right. This is the weirdest thing for me because I haven't been able to rule out that it's is or is not this Bobby Jack Fowler. So for people who aren't aware, Bobby Jock Fowler had other crimes attached to him. He had multiple arrests. He didn't really have any murder arrests. And quite honestly, he has zero confirmed murders. And he's suspected of 20 murders. He is known for having an, one attempted murder a couple of sexual assaults, firearms offenses, and then being a alcohol, amphetamine, and methamphetamine abuser. And I realized this morning when I was um, pulling all of this up that I had to look up the difference between amphetamine and methamphetamine. Do you know the difference? Um, I would say an atom. <laughs> I, that, that, I was just getting ready to say, like, I a looked it molecule? up and I still don't understand it. I still don't understand it. Well, um, it's like just a derivative, like one is a derivative of the other one. Pretty much. Amphetamine was discovered in 1887 and methamphetamine was discovered in 1893. And that's where my understandable notes end on the difference in the two. Are they not derived from the same uh, elements? It, uh, yes, overall they are. I, um, I was just I was just talking about it like I had always thought amphetamine in my head and when people said meth I just had assumed that methamphetamine was the same as amphetamine like people were just shortening it I just didn't know there was a difference in the Oh term. I see what you're saying yeah it is different but it I mean it's it, it's probably a little more than negligible but it's 
it's uh, largely very similar. Yeah. So the first thing I'm going to bring up today is um, it's a weird thing about Bobby Jack Fowler that normally I wouldn't go super deep into it, but it, it's an it's an appellate court ruling from a 1983 case. I don't know if it's the Bobby Jack Fowler or not, but I found it to be such an interesting piece of crime court case that um, I'm, I'm going to share it with you guys. Because uh, I, I got pretty deep into hunting the name Bobby Jack Fowler. Because ultimately what I'm trying to get to is how does he come up in those other cases uh, with the Epana and some of the other cases that we're going to talk about in Oregon and Washington as we go down this path. Um, and we had we had recently been talking about like different DNA stuff. We even mentioned it today with the Murdoch stuff. And that seems to be kind of how they're like connecting them to a few cases. But we had talked about uh, the McDonald uh, triad or the, the homicidal triad. And I, you know, sometimes I'll go on these like long keyword searches in these uh, different archival uh, places. Sometimes it's like medical journals I go looking through or law enforcement journals. In this instance, it's actually the Sioux City Journal and that's a newspaper. Um, you can find this on newspapers.com if you care to go looking. It's a weird appellate court ruling. Um, this is from Sioux City Journal's uh, December 19th, 1985, which is the Thursday edition. And it's buried on page 23 um, under crime is all it says at the, at the top for Siouxland, which is what they call the local area. The headline of the article is Iowa Appeals Court Upholds Controversial Arson Ruling. Um, this is out of Des Moines, Iowa for the byline and it went out on the AP wire back in 1985. It's possible to be convicted of arson in cases where no fire was set is the opening line. Did you know that was a thing? I did not. Uh, I'm not surprised, but no, I did not know that. Um, So this is from the Iowa Court of Appeals on December 18th, 1985, the reporting of the next day. In making the ruling, the court upheld the arson conviction of a Van Buren County man who threatened to start a blaze but didn't carry it through. The court reaffirmed the state's arson laws, which ban placing incendiary material on a building, whether or not any such property is actually destroyed or damaged. So that last part is in quotes, whether or not any such property is actually destroyed or damaged is starting in quote there. Uh, In this case, Bobby Jack Fowler had been charged with arson after a 1983 dispute with a neighbor. Court records said that Fowler threw gasoline on his neighbor and on his neighbor's house. He had a lighter in his possession and he threatened to set their house on fire. Fowler did not use the lighter and did not set anything on fire. Now, Fowler eventually pleaded guilty to second-degree arson in a plea bargain arrangement, according to court records, but he appealed it, challenging the state's arson laws. He argued it doesn't make sense to allow a conviction on arson charges in cases where there isn't any fire. His appeal claims it's unfair because it lumps together conduct which is arson with that which is, at the most, attempted arson. Well, there's a hair to split, right? He said that violated his constitutional rights to equal protection under the law. But the appeals court rejected his reasoning, saying lawmakers have wide discretion to draft criminal laws 
as long as the laws apply equally to all. There's a strong presumption of constitutionality of a statute. There's a strong presumption of constitutionality of a statute, and the individual challenging it on this basis must negate every reasonable, reasonable basis on which the statute might be sustained. According to the court, the legislature is given wide discretion in defining and classifying criminal criminal offenses in Iowa. I thought this was just hilarious, and I cannot stop laughing about it, that a Bobby Jack Fowler, maybe not the Bobby Jack Fowler, ends up in like a piece of Iowa appellate court history <laughs> is over whether or not you can be charged with arson even though you didn't set something on fire. Right. Um, well, and, you know, the, I believe <laughs> the law or the code, I'm not really sure what they were going by, but I'm pretty sure it says that um, it was uh, that he put combustible liquid, lighter fluid, whatever it was that you said, onto um, a his house and a neighbor's house. Um, and, and part of the law is that you can't put lighter fluid on things. Correct. It actually doesn't mention lighting them. I mean, it, it does talk about fire, right? But as far as it, he broke the law. I mean, he put the lighter fluid on the house. And so I can see where he was charged with that. Um, I can also, I, I don't think of it as like equal protection so much, um, because I'm sure they would do that to anybody. Right. Yeah. It applies to everybody. I am interested to see if this is him or not. Um, I've been hunting and I've asked, like, he doesn't appear that much in the news. That's one of the things that makes Bobby Jack Fowler so interesting to me is prior to this sort of revelation that uh, the RCMP believed him to be a serial killer in 2012, he doesn't really show up that much. Like, even, like, now, today... Uh, he gets mentioned in the news a little bit, but it's it's primarily uh, in Canada, Washington, and Oregon, and it's related to like a certain two series of uh, one being the Highway of Tears cases of serial uh, killings. Um, now, the other case, and I was going to ask you if you if you had ever heard of this. So, along with the Highway of Tears. Um, and in order to sort of get into uh, uh, Bobby Jack Fowler, we have to talk about this other thing that was going on. Have you ever heard of the ghost of Highway 20? I don't think so. It does look like he um, was known to be rabbiting around in uh, <laughs> North America. And in Iowa is included in the states he was known to be rabbiting so- around in. <laughs> It says. I, no, I've um, seen that. I've seen that quote. It's in the National Post that that quote starts, uh, and the Oregonian relays it as well. well it's, it's, it's something a cop said. It's from a Lincoln County detective, Ron Benson. Um, he quoted that uh, we, in with regard to Bobby Jack Fowler, that we think that was how he tried to protect himself, immediately rabbiting to another part of the country and establishing himself there. Um, And that's him talking about, I guess, his behavior after he had committed a crime. But one of the places that is uh, (laughs) listed as him, uh, because he was transient, right? I mean, he was a transient construction worker, and he was known to be in Iowa. So um, 
there aren't, it's not like a real uh, particular timeline here. And it does, I can't seem to find where it, it mentions that specific crime. Um, but I mean, it's a possibility. Yeah. I, it's, uh, it's one of those, it doesn't talk about the arson in any of the articles I've found. He's interesting to me because he sort of goes like all over, like they have him attached to this cold case down in um, South Carolina. That's going to come up a little later and one in Arizona, but he's, attached to three cases out in Oregon that were particularly uh, interesting to me. I just didn't know if, if you had like in your searches here, if there was a way that you can help me confirm some of these things, like, like I know about the, the Chinook wins casino. This is the motel room in 1995 where he attempts to, rape and kill the woman who gets out the window with a rope around her ankle and runs off. We talked about her earlier. Um, So they, at one point in time, they were looking for this other woman named Vicky and uh, uh, Vicky is Eugene Crocker's girlfriend. She comes up in some of those articles. Have you seen her mentioned? Yes. Um, So allegedly she worked at Maxwell's over in Lincoln city and Eugene Crocker's Bobby Jack Fowler's roommate, and she vanishes. Then they were debating if they could link him to these killings along a stretch of uh, I-45, like in League City, Texas, which is like, that's a, that's a whole different uh, scenario down there. But uh, I bring it up because League City, Texas is close to where Bobby Jack Fowler was born. Now, now where this, this other thing comes into play is and I don't know if you've ever seen this, like the overlapping territory of supposed serial predators. Does Do you have a sense? map? Yeah, like uh, it's sort of a map. If you look up US Route 20 in Oregon, now I just sent you a link, it's the top picture on the right hand side. It looked very similar to the E Pana cases, in that, like, it's sort of so, so US Route 20. It's a major west-east cross-state highway. Um, It's in the northern part of Oregon. So it connects U.S. Route 101 in Newport, Oregon, which is on the coast, over to the Idaho state line. It basically divides the state. It's not quite in half because the northern portion is a little smaller than the southern portion. But it, like, divides the state. There are a number of girls and women who disappeared or were victims of rape and murder along Highway 20 from the late 1970s into the early 1990s. Now, generally speaking, I've heard of a lot of these cases, and I wanted to sort of talk about them here because it's similar to Epona, but it's happening down below. If you just kind of glance at these cases, two of these are are sort of attributed to um, Bobby Jack Fowler, but they might not be a part of the ghosts of uh, Highway 20. Uh, Have you heard of these uh, sort of generally? Honestly, I... It's possible. Wait, have I stumped you? Because that never happens. This will be a first. Um, Well, 
I, I believe like um, Ms. Melissa Sanders and Sheila Swanson, I'm, I'm pretty sure I have an idea about them. Yeah. You've, yeah, you've definitely looked at them with me before, and just then, not in this context. I'd never seen them mentioned here, by the way. I, I haven't ever heard of the ghost of highway 20 and, Unfortunately, what that kind of tells me is that um, it's probably like one of those situations where you've got, you know, like the Highway of Tears or the Jeff Davis 8 or like another uh, lumping together of victims. Well, that's why I wanted to talk to you about this. Now, we're getting a little long in the case today, so I thought all I could do is sort of introduce to you – a couple of victims I don't think you've heard of. There's three of them in here. Um, but I wanted to I wanted to introduce another suspect here. And I, I, I want you to give me, like, your idea if you think he's a serial killer as we move through uh, Bobby Jack Fowler. Now, you don't have to do all that right this second. All I want to do first is sort of tell you, like, the cases I want to cover. Because they, you know, this is one of those things where the newspaper – dumps all these cases together and I have trouble sorting them out. Some of them are very clearly like there's a suspect, but I don't always see that suspect as somebody who is the killer or whatever. Um, so I thought, I thought I would just start with a little bit about those cases and then give you a chance to go through them. Um, there are three of them. Um, the first one is an, is a woman named Marlene Gabrielson. And I say woman, but, realize this is a 20 year old in the seventies. Um, so it's not like it's, it's not a housewife. It's not an older woman. It's a very young woman, like college age. Uh, the second one is, uh, the year after that, her name is Kay Turner. Now she is 35 years old. And then the third one that they lump into this is a 13 year old girl named Rashonda pickle. So we have, Marlene Gabrielson, we have Kay Turner, and then we have Rashonda Pickle. So the glaring overview of them is is like this is, and I'm literally giving you like the snapshot. Uh, in 1977, Marlene uh, Gabrielson goes to Sisters, Oregon. She's going to the rodeo with her husband. She lives in Lebanon. So Lebanon is about an hour and a half away in Lynn County, Oregon. Um, so Lebanon is located in like far Northwest Oregon. It's just like to the South and the East of Salem. And it had a real small population in 1977 of about 4,000 people. This is her first night out since she gave birth to multiple baby girls three months earlier. So she and her husband, they get into a disagreement and he had wanted to go hang out with some friends. Marlene was asking him if they could go home. A guy named John Arthur Aykroyd, like, like Dan Aykroyd, gave her a ride and she fell asleep. An hour into the ride, he pulls off the highway onto an old wagon road. He holds a knife to her neck and he drags her into the woods He rips off her jeans, cuts off her underwear, cuts off her boots with a knife, and he rapes her. She pleads to be taken home to her baby. Baby's baby, depending on where you read. And he drives her to her mother-in-law's house in Lebanon. Marlene 
preserves the evidence of having been raped. She keeps the clothing that's been cut that she could grab hold of. And when she gets to her mother-in-law's house, she asks for them to call the police. She described him as a large, burly man who may have worked in the woods. And although the evidence at the time, including a rape kit they did for her and the physical marks left on her body, uh, the police don't prosecute John Aykroyd. Um, she does not get interviewed until much later. And she is thought to be part of Aykroyd's first. So with her, like that path would go down towards John Aykroyd. Um, I, the reason I bring her up here is because I am always curious about serial killers who leave victims alive at some point. Uh, and if she's the first one and he like leaving her alive, uh, that's interesting to me. But here's the second part that was, that was interesting with Kay Turner. Uh, this is one of the first times I had seen this sort of play out in a way that I felt like it was, uh, had some veracity to it. Um, can I just clarify really quick with Marlene yeah. Gabrielson? Um, she, she was acquainted with John Arthur Aykroyd, right? I uh, I'm, I think so. Okay, but, like they were in a group of people and he was one of the people in a group. Like she, this wasn't just a random guy. Uh, I think he was kind of random to her. I think he gave her a ride and she didn't know him that well. And she was he was just like sort of on the fringes of the same group. But still known. I mean, there. No, yes, absolutely. It's not completely random. It's just. She didn't yell out like in a bar, like, hey, who can take me home? <laughs> like somebody right. said, I'm not going to go. I'll take you home. Right. I will give you, I can do a little better on her for you. Um, I will give you something where you can hear her story and make a decision on that as we go forward. How's that sound? Um, that you don't have to do it right now. This is for, this is for the next episode because these are the same people investigating Bobby Jack Fowler. That's why I'm down this rabbit hole at the moment. Uh, I don't know the answer to that question, but I do want to find the answer to that question out. Meaning is, uh, she random or is she an acquaintance? Fair enough. Uh, well, I, I feel pretty confident. Um, I mean, it didn't say she was hitchhiking, so Right, right. It didn't say that either to me. They have to be um, acquainted somehow, and that makes it all very, very different. Yeah. So then we have uh, a woman named Kay Turner. Now, what happens with her – so she's the staff resources manager in Lane County um, at the social services office. In the Christmas holiday, uh, she and – her husband go with their friends to camp Sherman, Oregon, which is like a, uh, a little community down in Jefferson County, Oregon with a year round population in 2022 of 308 people that year. She had climbed three finger Jack, which is a, a, a mountain. It's actually, I, I say mountain, but I think it's actually a volcano. Um, and that's the the summit of the volcano, and it's in the Cascades, which is something we brought up quite a bit. Uh, she had climbed Mount Washington, which is over on the East Coast uh, in New Hampshire. Um, it's the highest peak in the Northeast U.S. So on Christmas Eve, 
she went on a run. So this is a woman who does marathons. She's 35 years old. They're from Eugene, Oregon. They are visiting Camp Sherman. She goes on a run by herself just before breakfast around 8, 8.15 in the morning. The run that she was taking, she expected it would take her about an hour, and she was going to run along a two-lane camp road. There was a state highway worker who lived at Camp Sherman named Thomas Hanna, and he spotted her running south, and he saw another highway worker that he recognized, who he believed was John Ackroyd. So Kay's husband, Noel, he drives through Camp Sherman looking for his wife when she didn't show back up by 10 a.m. Because that was around the time she should have returned no matter what. He was worried that his wife had been kidnapped. So he calls the police and he starts organizing a search. The police originally thought that Noel had something to do with his wife's disappearance because she had had extramarital affairs with two different men. They end up interviewing John Aykroyd, who had gotten off of work around 6.30 a.m. Now, he had been based out of what is known as uh, Santiam Junction, Oregon, which is in Lynn County, and he drove to Camp Sherman, which is about 25 miles from his work. And he said that he had planned on going out to hunt coyotes that day. And he even mentioned that he had seen a runner in a clearing. The police said they did not consider Ackroyd to be a suspect, even though there was a witness with Thomas Hanna having seen her. During the searches for Kay, they found multiple sets of footprints together. Two specific sets of them seemed to be running alongside each other. One matched her Nike shoe treads, so the shoes that she was running in, and the other set was consistent with footprints of a very large man. The scene that they found and documented appeared to indicate that there had been a scuffle and that the smaller person of the two had been drug away by the larger person. In August of 1979, something weird happens. An Ackroyd reports that he had found... Turner's remains in the woods about a half mile off the road that she had been running along. She had been kidnapped and killed. Police were surprised that Ackroyd had claimed the remains were of Kay Turner because little was found of her other than a few scraps of uh, clothing and some scattered bones. He also said that he thought he was the last person to see her. Over time, he disclosed that he had talked with her before picking up another man named Roger Dale Beck, who was one of uh, Ackroyd's friends and a person who lived in the Camp Sherman area that he hunted with. Because remember, he said he was out hunting coyotes. But Ackroyd said that he saw her remains about two months after her disappearance and didn't report it. Now, this doesn't really get the police's interests for a long time. Uh, specifically, this is all happening that she goes missing at the end of 1978, about eight or nine months later, Ackroyd in August of 1979, he like finds her remains or reports that he's found her remains. Um, it doesn't get the police interest until 1990. Uh, and the, the police began, uh, 
investigating Ackroyd and collecting new information because of something that happened uh, in 1990 that we're going to talk about in just a second. Um, now, Ackroyd and Beck end up indicted by a Jefferson County grand jury and arrested in 1992. In 1993, Ackroyd is convicted of the aggravated murder of Kay Turner and her uh, rape and of shooting her. Um, he gets a life sentence for that. Beck had bragged to his family about this murder, was also found guilty in November of 1993, um, same charges uh, in Jefferson County, in a separate trial. Testimony from Beck's ex-wife, Pam Ramirez, and new forensic testing are are credited with helping to prosecute the case. And Jefferson County District Attorney Bill Hanlon said that Ackroyd had been trying to get the reward for finding Turner. But he said if Ackroyd had said nothing, they never would have found her and the case would never have gone anywhere. All this comes about because 13-year-old Rashonda Pickle, who is the daughter of a woman named Linda Pickle, who had married Ackroyd in the mid-1980s, and they lived in the Santium Junction area at Oregon 22 and off of U.S. Highway 20, where all these state highway work crews frequently lived. Uh, the area was very remote, and there were no other children Rashonda's age there. She's 13 at the time. Uh, she gets bussed into school, and Ackroyd was physically and sexually abusive to her. Well, one day, Rashonda was left at home during the day, and Ackroyd decided to take the day off, and he returns home very late, and she's never seen again. There was a massive search conducted by 100 police officers from seven counties, and they were unsuccessful in finding any leads to Rashonda's disappearance. This, so have you ever heard of uh, the Rashonda Pickle case? Um, in passing, I have, yes. Yeah, I, I think I, I have looked at it a little bit. The, the deal with her is she goes missing in July of 1990. And this detective, his name is Jim Salisbury. He stays on that case for like a really long time. Um, he actually makes these massive, I would, I would call them scrapbooks, except they're much more organized than that. Um, they're almost like murder books on her, except it's every lead that ever came in. It's everyone who like ever talked to them. Um, it, it, like they go through over and over uh, trying to find this little girl. Cause like 13 is little, like that's a little girl. Um, and it takes a while, but he compiles enough evidence that in April of 2014, Ackroyd is charged with her murder and he pleads it out. According to Lynn County District Attorney Doug Martiny, a settlement is reached with Byron Pickle, who is the victim's brother, and they place the prosecution of the murder on hold. The way that they do that is they suspend the indictment. He's charged, but he's pleading no contest, and he's agreeing not to seek parole in exchange for the prosecution, not prosecuting him. Have you ever heard of a deal like that? Like in that type of He's already in jail, right? Right, right. He's already in jail. He's in jail for Turner's murder. The idea was like, if something were ever to come to light that like, for some reason, Turner's case was going to be overturned, then 
they would suddenly pop up and prosecute him for this. Right. I feel like they, um, she was never found, right? Not that no, I've seen no, it. No, right? no, never found. It, it was, I mean, yeah, they say they reached a settlement. I, I don't really know what that means, but um, I guess he was her closest remaining uh, family member or the one that took an interest. I, I don't know. You know, they did charge him. They probably didn't have enough evidence to convict him. Well, I mean, in this type of case, uh, it just would have went on anything, right? Yeah. Um, if somebody hadn't pushed, if whether it was the detective or the brother or whatever. And so they got some resolution here. Um, it doesn't seem to be much of a question of uh, the fact that he did it, right? Um, at least, and I'm not talking about in a judicial setting, but just the other circumstances of the case, it seems like more than likely he would have been responsible for her disappearance, right? Yeah. And so, I, I mean, I have heard of different things. Um, it usually does encompass other circumstances, like they're already sending, they're already spending the rest of their life in jail for something else. Or, you know, something to that effect uh, where I don't think that they would compromise on a situation otherwise, right? I mean, if yeah, you're I, do I it, agree you with you, yeah. do it. If not, you know, not. But uh, it's just a way to kind of, I mean, it made her matter, right? Which is good. I mean, it's good that she matters. It's unfortunate that they weren't able to, um, you know, bring the case full circle, find her. Uh, somehow entice him to tell what he did with her or whatever, right? Yeah. Uh, I, I remember this case because of one sentence. Somewhere along the way, in some piece of documentary, whatever, I don't know if I, I, don't know if I heard it on, a, on an audio piece or if I heard like news or podcast or something, or if I heard it on, um, I don't know where exactly I heard it, but it was, uh, he knew her weight and her bra size, but he couldn't remember her birthday, his stepdaughter. And that always, like, stood out to me. It's really weird. Yeah. Like, who does that? Um, he's also one of those guys that sort of started me thinking along the theory that um, guilty people gain weight in prison and innocent people lose it. That's not – it's not – scientific and it doesn't hold up but no kidding. but um but he, have you ever okay. seen a picture of him there's a case study for you right there that guy uh did you send it to me oh, hold on, i'm sending you one no i'm talking about the the hypothesis that uh guilty people gain weight and and some people lose weight um the problem with that is like a lot of times um Guilt or innocence can be dubious. Oh, I just like, I had all these theories about it. Like when I started going down that path, um, I would like, I would like look at canteen records of like what people were buying and how they were doing it. And I just felt like manipulative personalities were eating all the honey buns. I know that sounds terrible, but like, Dude, that's, if I was in jail, I'd be eating all the honey buns. I mean, what would it matter? <laughs> Anyways, anyways, um, so that's that's where we're leaving off. We're coming that's back. A, that's an interesting theory, though. Very it's just a theory, yeah. I and, um, but we're gonna come back. Okay, so where we're going next is we're, we're gonna kind of parallel this guy, um, John Aykroyd, with Bobby Jack Fowler. 
because they're operating in sort of the same time, very different uh, across the board uh, predators. Now, uh, Fowler does a couple of, like, like he does a couple of crazy things uh, in the course of the story if all the stuff that they attribute to him is accurate. But John Aykroyd does equally interesting nonsense. And I say this because John Aykroyd, he has essentially hurt people close to them. He's taken his girlfriend's daughter, and he has also uh, apparently enlisted an accomplice, which are all the things that, like, if you were teaching a serial killer class, you never do those things. And he does all of them. But he almost gets away with a lot of his bullshit. Well, he... I'm, I'm under the impression, again, I don't know that it's accurate, but I'm under the impression that more than likely he, um, I don't think that Beck and Ackroyd killed Kay Turner, uh, together. That's, I, Uh, that, I, I want your opinion on that. You do not have to give it right the second. You have a minute to look all that up. Well, I'm just saying, like, I find that, like you said, like, if you are if you were teaching a, like, what not to do as a serial killer, like, don't have an accomplice, right? Yeah. Um, and granted, it doesn't seem like, um, doesn't seem like Ackroyd confessed. Now, he did, um, you know, quote, find, end quote, her body, and he was sure that, like, you know, the remains that shouldn't otherwise be identified were this particular person, right? But um, Beck, uh, he actually, uh, Roger Dale Beck, he actually, like, had confessed to people. He confessed to his own family. His own family ends up, like, in a position where they're going to have to testify against them. Right. And so to me, like, I mean, it's interesting, right? It's It's a weird dynamic there um but clearly he had something to do with it or he had a uh, guilty knowledge of it or something because of just sort of how it played out it's really strange though for a perp <laughs> to help law enforcement find a body of their victim yeah, there, there's some interesting stuff that's going to come up as we kind of move forward on this about Roger Dale Beck as well. He has like a couple of weird tidbits going on in his life. So we're going to we're going to talk a little bit more about him when we talk about John Ackroyd. But I'm you know, I've always been curious, like what you think of like it's almost like a roving band of like idiot serial killers are getting away with things um, that like I know they're not going around together. But, like, how is – like, you know, I want to talk about, like, some of the ways this is – I don't know. Like, a problem for law enforcement, a problem for the courts. And how have we gotten over this in 2023? Yeah, well, uh, plea deals. <laughs> um, well, if you look, I mean, he was – I think he was actually convicted. I think he was convicted um, for K. Turner. I don't know that he actually committed that. But if you think about it, so – Marlene Gabrielson, I feel like was an, a friend, acquaintance situation. 
So that's like an X on the serial killer chart, right? Not a serial killer, but she didn't die. She was sexually assaulted. Um, Kay Turner, there's some weird things happening there with his accomplice. And then, like, of course, his stepdaughter. Um, That's how far we've gotten so far. And to me, um, in in the terms I think of a serial killer, um, you know, Kay Turner might be getting him there if he actually was involved and did it. Um, beyond just having, you know, fueling a, a friend. I, I don't really know how to put that. But um, but the acquaintance and uh, the stepdaughter, the female acquaintance and the stepdaughter, to me, that's just, uh, we're leaning more towards, you know, an asshole. Yeah, that's what I thought too. That's what I thought when I read it. So- because he's picking on people that, um, you know, he can well, let me ask you this. From what you know about Bobby Doc Fowler so far and this little tiny bit that I've said about John Ackroyd, what do you think the likelihood that they would commit an almost identical – that they would commit an almost identical crime are? I, I, I'm not sure I understand the question. So they're very different personalities. They're doing very different things. Do you, oh, what, I see what you're saying. Um I feel like um, in the event that they committed similar crimes, and I, you mean they're similar beyond just like murder or sexual assault, right? Yeah, yeah, it's very similar, like they, like from well, start to it, finish. Just from not knowing, um, I would say that it would show me that they're both just assholes. Interesting. I was wondering if like if, if I don't know which cases you're talking about, but like I feel like an asshole is an asshole is an asshole. And uh, you could see a lot of similarities in the things that assholes do. Um, and, you know, you're going to find it to be like, you know, picking on somebody smaller than them. Uh, usually, you know, if it's a male, they'll be picking on a female or a child. It will be some sort of demeaning, degrading, uh, you know, bullying type of activity. It's just typical asshole behavior, right? And so I do think two really different personalities um, exhibiting the same types of activities towards who ultimately become their victims. I think um, now that doesn't mean that they're not serial killers, right? It just means that like, from what I have right this second and what you've said, that is a link that could put them uh, committing very similar crimes uh, without being serial killers. They're just both assholes. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. I think some people just give up and they go for infamy. I, I don't know. Thank you so much for joining us today. We'll see you next time.
my kind of fear 